Welcome back to Studying Abroad in the Global South. This episode is a conversation between two of our colleagues, Moya Leverett, our Arabic coordinator in Rabat, and Zerlina Bartholomew, a regular guest and program officer here at Amadeus at Abroad. In this conversation, they talk about their myriad experiences in Morocco, including the differences between conducting research as a graduate student versus as a recent undergraduate. Welcome. This is Zerlina Bartholomew, a voice you've heard before in previous podcasts. Today, I'm with Moya Leverett, a PhD student at Rutgers University and studied undergrad at Queens College. I'm really excited to be with you, Moya, uh, as we talk about our experiences in the study abroad slash uh, global education realm and specifically talking about the differences, challenges, and experiences as an undergrad student and as a graduate student. So welcome. Thank you. Very nice to be here talking with you about my experiences or our experiences in general. To begin, do you want to explain what your PhD work is about? I am a PhD candidate at Rutgers in the History Department, and I'm currently writing up my dissertation, which looks at southern Morocco in a general sense, so that's the Anti-Atlas region, more specifically at the Heritian community, which are Mm. said to be descendants of slaves, and looking at their role as well as the Anti-Atlas region's role in the nationalist movement in Morocco. So the anti-colonialism and nationalist movements against the French. Oh, wow. So this would be in early, middle to 20th century. Exactly. Middle 20th century, precisely. Perfect. So I have to ask this. How did you get involved in the region or the country specifically and um, your experiences as now a graduate student just to kind of transition in to the theme today? Well, my interest in the region began on my first study abroad trip to the Middle East. I went to Israel um, on a study abroad program. It was a month-long content program, so it was not a language course, mm-hmm. with one of my mentors. We went to Israel. We studied the Crusades. I was wow. not interested in the Crusades <laughs> at all. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but we were playing um, Reacting to the Past. It's a pedagogy of teaching history where students take on various roles from a particular historical period. And they play different characters to teach them about the contingency of history and that Mm. history isn't some sort of linear path that people just go from A to B, that different events happen and different things happen at a particular moment to shape the movement of certain individuals' paths and the overall arc of a historical event. So we played that game, and I fell in love with the region, and I fell in love with Arabic, which is I find interesting that I went to a Hebrew-speaking country to fall in love with Arabic. Mm-hmm. But the first time I heard the language, actually, I thought it was French. Um, really? <laughs> I had not traveled outside of the Caribbean and outside of the U.S. Uh, prior to that trip. So I heard it, and I was like, what is this beautiful language I hear? I was like, is that French? And they're like, uh, it's Arabic. <laughs> Oh, so I look back on it, I was like, oh, you're so naive. But you have to start somewhere, right? You have to start somewhere. Yeah. So that was my first introduction to the Middle East. And I came back from that trip and I was like, I'm going to learn Arabic. And little did I know that it would take me 10 years later. And I'm like, I still need to learn some more Arabic. Yeah, such is the way of Arabic language studies. Exactly. Yeah. It's, a, it's such a deep investment. But the more I studied the language, the more interested I became in the culture 
And so I went to Egypt the very next summer on another study abroad program, this mm. time for language training. And I experienced a, a great deal of emotional turmoil because mm -hmm. of the fact that I'm a black woman. The Darfur crisis was happening then, oh, and a wow. lot of Sudanese okay. were coming to Egypt, and there was lots of tension, similar to what's happening now in North Africa, mm -hmm. um, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, and Morocco with um, Sub-Saharan African right. people that are um, coming and trying to traverse, or, you know, for various reasons, some of which is traversing Morocco and North mm -hmm. Africa into Europe. I experienced that, but for a different population, um, the Sudanese, and so I sort of got caught up in that experience and had a very difficult time. Um, lots of racial slurs were thrown at me, mm. lots of... And um, you understood them because you were studying the language, right. and yes. so it, yes. it, it's kind of, maybe we'll touch on it later, this idea of ignorance is bliss, but when you have an exposure and an understanding of the language, mm -hmm. how that can also influence your experiences abroad, too. Yeah. I felt even more in love with the language, mm. and I vowed that I would love the people even if they hated me, which is such a profound statement to make as a, a college student, but yeah. I still feel the same way because I still have the same experiences. Now mm -hmm. I understand how to deal with them a little bit differently, but I, I'm still on that quest, and part of that quest is that I'm still undertaking it now that I've been studying the language for since 2008. Mm -hmm. um, and even more than that, that I'm getting a PhD on the history and culture of the people. And the marginalized community, and, and the even marginalized more so. Communities so of, of those, almost um, coming full circle in some right, ways. Exactly. And so that's how I became invested in, in study abroad. And I know we wanted to talk about the, the different structures, and I think that those play mm -hmm. a huge impact in the way that I experienced particular things when I was an undergraduate versus the way that I experience them now as a graduate student. Most of my experience and knowledge of study abroad and international education is coming from the undergraduate experience. Sure, I've had other opportunities, but that's where most of my experiences are coming from. And so I would be interested in what your experience was and is as a graduate student. To kind of piggyback off of what you were saying, in undergraduate study abroad programs and sessions, it's very structured. Mm -hmm. And I think this is uh, themed throughout programs that are offered. So yes, I am as well a black woman and I experienced a lot of challenges that my counterparts who didn't identify with the community, the communities I physically uh, represent, they didn't have to go through. I found as an undergraduate student that within these structures and institutions being the study abroad programs, we had the orientations and while they tried to address challenges students may face, there was still a lack of, I wouldn't say awareness, but a lack of really including the different backgrounds and narratives and demographics students come from, from the U.S. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I'm sure those within the community are aware of, or with this podcast they are going to be aware of, but as an undergraduate student, it's also different, I would think, because we did have guidelines and expectations and, you know, some of the institutions that we were through or studying through had rules. And so we had to follow program expectations. If you were in a homestay, we had to do reporting. Other programs, they have different mechanisms just because the liability mm -hmm. of having students, undergraduate students specifically, is a major issue that all programs face and deal with. So it was very structured in terms of where we could go if we had to do a emergency phone check 
to make sure that we're all safe. But as a graduate student, be it through doing independent research or even affiliated with your university, however your experience was, do you mind sharing what it was like or what it is like yeah. doing field um, work? So I'll tell you what my undergrad experience is and then I'll tell you how it differs from my graduate student Perfect. experience. So I take your point, and I, I agree with it, that there's a lots of structures that go into an undergraduate program that can mitigate against the kind of experiences that you will have studying abroad in whatever context it is that mm -hmm. you end up studying abroad in. So I did a few, maybe six or seven study abroad programs. Yeah, quite oh a few. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> six or seven through undergrad? Through, uh, through undergrad, yes. Wow. So I, I studied Arabic. Well, only one of those semesters was a content okay. uh, study, but all of the others were Arabic language Intensive? Study, uh, intensive oh, Arabic okay. language programs. So they differ to varying degrees. As I progressed in my in my study abroad program, the less structured the programs became, and the more exposed I became to the culture and also the things that come with being exposed to different cultures. Sure. I would say that the content courses that are led by instructors tend to be more curated, meaning mm -hmm. that the instructors tend to, to have an idea of what they want the courses to look like and what they want the students to gain out of it. And mm -hmm. so they shape the trips and the activities surrounding those things. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think in many ways for students who are going outside for the first time, it's a good way to go because you have someone there who is knowledgeable and can protect you or sure. expose you to things that can help you to grow as a person. And so that's what happened with me in Israel. And it's where I first learned about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. She answered many questions and shared many things, but I also left the opportunity for me to go back and search for my own understanding of what mm. was happening. And you had the space to do that. Exactly. Right? Okay. That's the first thing I did. I came back, fell in love with Arabic. We talked more about it, and I went off and I joined. I signed up to become a minor in Arabic. When I went to Egypt, I, I was a Mellon Mays undergraduate fellow, uh -huh. so I went through that. So it was semi-structured because there were many other American students there. There was a strong connection with my university, mm -hmm. and so it was semi-structured. I still had to report. I had my mentor that was guiding me. But even so, because there was no faculty curating my experiences, I was able to go off and explore for myself, and then I met with lots of discrimination. Mm. Um, I have to say that this is a bit blunt, but people tried to hit me with their cars. You know, I met with a lot of Sub-Saharan Africans mm -hmm. from Nigeria, from Sudan, from all of these places um, that were coming to Cairo to study because of the university system. And they were also sharing their experiences with me about race and marginality in these mm -hmm. countries and perceptions about poverty and all of these things. And so I became even more exposed to those kinds of experiences, which drove me even more to wanting to explore the history of marginality in these what I thought were African spaces. Now I've come to discover that mm -hmm. it's more complicated than it's just. It's much more complicated. Right, much more complicated <laughs> than just. I am on the continent of Africa, which is, is itself a construct, an historical construct. And to think about how people from of North Africa think about themselves differently from people from Sub-Saharan Africa. And the positionality exactly. and the relation with the continent and ultimately... Again, uh, color. Exactly, which is uh, one of the fundamental questions of my dissertation, right? Mm. How does color attach itself to geographic space and ancestry and lineage? Um, and how does that shape a person's position within North African society? And social worth, essentially. Exactly, exactly. So I had all those experiences with racism and with colorism. Mm -hmm. And so I kept studying Arabic. Even when I became a graduate student, you know, studying more and becoming more aware of myself. I went to Israel when I was 21, mm. and I, I started graduate school when I was 25, something like that. I came to Morocco as a graduate student. For mm -hmm. the, I think it was the third time I came, and 
I still experience a lot of the same things, but coming yeah. as a professional was slightly different in that I was the one that was choosing and deciding what spaces I wanted to interact. Mm. Even though I was making those choices, I still had a difficult time managing the kinds of experiences, the negative experiences that I was exposed to. And um, this is with already having a background exactly. in an exposure to those circumstances. Exactly. Mm. And so in one sense, you're never quite prepared, but... The more you expose yourself, the better you are able to deal with those things. And so I agree. I it's a tough lesson to learn. It is a tough lesson and a, unfortunately a continual lesson that yes. you have to learn. Um, and the growth isn't necessarily linear and the response to mm -hmm. it isn't necessarily linear. It isn't. Some days it rolls off my shoulders. Sure. And some days I weep as though that I'd lost someone. Thank mm. God that isn't the case. But it feels as painful I went through the it, same thing mm -hmm. so I completely understand yeah. yeah and so you know I have many instances of going to archives where I've been denied entrance because mm. I didn't present as a scholar you know or I've just been treated in a way that wasn't becoming of the, those archival institutions you know they should receive scholars of any sort whether I be Moroccan For American sure. or white black Asian whatever that I should be received in a standard manner with professional courtesy, mm -hmm. but that wasn't the case. And so, you know, I think that even though I'm more mature as an individual and as a scholar, it is still really difficult studying abroad. To kind of echo and support what you're yeah. saying, and not to put words in your mouth, but I think we would both agree that you know, our expertise and mm -hmm. exposure has been in the Middle East and North Africa, but these issues lie throughout the world. Mm -hmm. It's not indicative or a, a character of a certain region of the world. Mm -hmm. With this concept of maturity, and again, I'm commenting from the undergraduate aspect, and then also when I did my own field work uh, under a fellowship, it was definitely a learning moment. And despite the challenges that we've both faced, despite the perhaps institutional challenges that aren't in place in terms of like the infrastructure, the services available for underrepresented students. I think it was really important for me as a person, as an academic, but more so as a person and as an individual who wants to be an active and positive global citizen, that I had those experiences. Kind of weird to say, but again, looking at it retrospectively, after my first study abroad experience or semester in Morocco, it definitely shed way more light on to how the country thinks about people, thinks about itself. And that experience, though difficult, when I was faced with racial slurs and rocks being thrown at me, being spit on, being followed, these, and again, I'm not saying this to demonize the country because I have a deep respect and appreciation for what Morocco and the region offers, but it helped shape how I think, how I communicate, how I observe situations, and then led to developing a research project that I'm extremely passionate about. And it sounds like you, with your experiences, it led you to question marginality and, and representation or lack thereof mm -hmm. within these spaces. And so I think that yeah, on the I mean, positive yeah. side, mm -hmm. like studying abroad, even as an underrepresented member of a community or communities, there are benefits to that. Now, it's a question of maturity and it's a question of where someone is at that point in time, but it definitely has been a theme throughout my life, throughout my young adult, even adolescence, but even more so now as a young adult, as I figure out and confirm my stance on 
things. Yeah, I think you've touched on what the issue of positionality mm. and and representation. I think part of the challenge that I recognize, and it's clear that you recognize the same thing based on what you've said just now, that a part of the issue is is how prepared institutions of any sort mm -hmm. are the ones that are in the education ab abroad sphere are to deal with people that look like us. Right. You know, how prepared are you to talk to the issues that students like us will face, brown students of all sorts, mm -hmm. um, gender-wise or non-conforming. Right. But yeah, like the physical aspects, but also the less visible. Right. Students who come from lower socioeconomic yeah. status, mm -hmm. students who have major responsibilities, be it, you know, having dependents or mm -hmm. just daily life. How yeah. are these institutions prepared or unprepared and mm -hmm. how can we bridge that yeah. gap to yeah. best serve the student population yes. that we want to and I, I think there's an aspect of preparing the students as well. But mm -hmm. ultimately, we, we both know this, that there is no way to cover 100% of the time the topics. Sure. But there is a way to be more prepared. Mm -hmm. um, and talking about race, researching the country, the history of the countries that you're sending your students to. Yes. Talking to students that have gone previously of all sorts. It, it doesn't matter the positionality of the students. Talking to all of your students that have gone on study abroad yes. mm -hmm. and seeing the sort of challenges that they experienced, and then marketing that information or gathering that information mm -hmm. in such a way that it benefits students to come. I think part of the issue as well is that educational abroad, at least the ones that are based in the U.S., need to do a better job of preparing their partner institutions. Mm. And why do I say this? I'll share an anecdote. So I was in Jordan, and I was at, at an institution, and one of my Arabic instructors said, we'll just choose a name, Martha. Martha, go take this picture we want to show the world that Americans, blonde hair, blue eyed, are coming to study Arabic. Mm. And so that was deeply hurtful for me because I was one of two brown people, let's say, mm -hmm. in the program, and the other one did not present as such. Okay. And so I was the only visibly, let's say, mm -hmm. um, brown person in the program. Non-passing. <laughs> Non-passing person. And it was just deeply hurtful for me because as a partner institution, you should, as much as you can, prep those places that are receiving your students on the ethics mm. of study abroad, yes. right? On what is appropriate to say and what isn't. Because what happens oftentimes is that students of color, Americans and Europeans, tend to have their identities effaced mm. when they are studying abroad. It's not an issue of Middle East or African. I've spent time in Europe. Mm -hmm. And those things happen again. Oh, you're American? You don't and look it's Amer questioned. Right? You're yeah. American? You don't look American. Where are your people from? Exactly. You know, and those, mm -hmm. those questions are deeply hurtful, and they can be avoided. It's something that if a student doesn't need to deal with that from partner institutions, it helps them cope a little bit better when they deal with it outside. Because if you imagine, if there is no curator, mm -hmm. meaning the instructor there, to help those students deal with those issues, they don't feel as though they can go to their partner institutions because there there's no allyship there because For sure. you've already established yourself as someone who further marginalizes and perpetuates perpetuates those these concepts the, yeah. the concepts as a partner institution or the leading structure i'm of the philosophy that they too in terms of yes program management and health safety and security and all of these categories there's also a duty of creating and fostering a space to where students who be they underrepresented or or not, feel like they can voice their concerns or, you know, just kind of process what they experience on a daily basis. I know that in my study abroad experience and being abroad under an institution, 
there was a lack of representation. You know, student or group dynamics were questionable, to be quite frank. And so feeling like I couldn't express myself or when I did, people would dismiss my experiences because, oh, you're thinking too into it or, oh, you are being too sensitive and thinking from an American mentality. This sort of gaslighting can have certainly immediate negative repercussions, Mm -hmm. but also influence how the person thinks about their experience and how that can trickle into the region specifically. Mm -hmm. It's like the antithesis of Mm -hmm. the purpose of studying abroad and cross-cultural exchange and all of this. And so preparing students, it's Mm -hmm. more so institutions for these students. Mm -hmm. Because again, uh, representation is growing, but it's still really really small when you look at the statistics the percentages of who's coming mainly coming from four-year institutions we haven't even talked about those who go to community or commuter colleges or non-traditional track so there are a lot of lot of room for improvement but with these conversations the hope is that there's a larger awareness I think that you've hit the nail on the head that when we talk about structures it's not just about programmatic structures, it's about preparation. There should be an orientation for institutions. Ooh, like a well. workshop. A workshop for sort of like when, when students apply to study abroad, you give them a pre-departure orientation. Mm. That There should be a pre-country selection orientation. That is there a should, very good idea. Right. There should be a pre-country <laughs> selection orientation. There should be a pre-departure orientation. There should be a post-departure orientation. Not for the students, but for the people who are responsible. And do like, like an external assessment and right, see like, how mm-hmm. did it go? How, right. What were the challenges? Because the, the thing is that if you are an institution that on a base level, if you're giving scholarship money for students to go abroad to study, mm-hmm. you need to make sure that your money is being well spent. Right. Okay. And that, and and it doesn't mean that you're going to prepare your students to have no negative experiences. That is not. That's not a reality. That is not a reality. But making sure that you are doing your best to prepare students to go off and be a positive impact. For sure. In in the world, wherever it is that they go, Mm -hmm. because you want to be a driver's change. When you have someone that's going out and having to deal with those really emotionally debilitating experiences, it really really negatively impacts people's perceptions and people's ability to engage with one another as human. And Mm -hmm. that is ultimately the aim of study abroad. Yes. I couldn't agree or couldn't have said it better. So this is definitely not the end of this conversation. There are so many other aspects and avenues to pursue, but this is a great conversation. Looking at undergrad, grad, institutions, and how they all play a role in the individual students' experiences and how to improve on them as these bigger structures. So we'll end it here, but I hope to speak with you and have you on the podcast again. Best of luck with your research and writing, and I'm excited to see what the future holds. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Studying Abroad in the Global South. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individual speaking and do not reflect or represent the views or opinions of Amid East or any of its affiliates. Please visit our website at amideastedabroad.org and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in next time for something clever, snarky, and or hopefully useful.